Hello everyone. My name is Frank Bloomfield. I'm a professor of neonatology in Auckland, New Zealand, and also director of the Liggins Institute, a research institute into mothers and babies' health. I'm going to be talking to you today about the chapter on approaches to growth faltering. And I'd like at this point to acknowledge my co-authors, Brenda Poindexter and Barbara Cormack. Barbara's also from the University of Auckland. So that my topic is faltering growth in preterm babies. And the first point I'd like to address is what do we mean by faltering growth? And it's important to realize that faltering growth is dynamic, just as growth at any other point of the life cycle is dynamic. It's not determined by a given centile on a growth chart at a single point in time. So when we read about a proportion of preterm babies who have suffered faltering growth, using a definition of a certain centile at 36 weeks corrected age or term corrected age, that really is not a definition of faltering growth. It's telling us about the size of the babies in that population or cohort, but not how they have grown since they were born. Instead, faltering growth is a fall across centiles after birth. This defines the trajectory of growth, indicating that it's not up to the optimal level. When we're thinking about this, however, we do have to remember that there is a natural fall across centiles shortly after birth due to the contraction of extracellular fluid. The mid-gestation fetus is almost 80% fluid, and some of this is excreted after birth. Therefore, babies have a fall across centiles in the first few days. On average, this approximates to about 0.8 Z scores for weight, and that is fairly consistent across preterm gestations. The other reason we're interested in faltering growth is because it is very common in both preterm and very low birth weight babies. This is important because as a population, preterm babies are already smaller than the gestational age match fetuses who go on to birth at term. So if, for example, we were to plot preterm babies at a given gestation on a fetal growth chart, instead of seeing the bell-shaped curve normal distribution that we see on our birth weight cross-sectional charts, we would actually see a skewed chart that's skewed to the left with a greater proportion of preterm babies being small. This is because preterm birth is linked to fetal growth. The other reason it's important is because at the time that preterm babies are born, they are undergoing a period of growth in, in the womb that is very, very rapid. In fact, probably the most rapid of any time of life. And therefore they need fetal nutrient requirements to support that rapid growth. And matching these levels after birth is very challenging, both through the limited fluid requirements and also trying to increase the amount of enteral nutrition these babies can tolerate. So when we're thinking about measuring growth, we have to remember that weight is a measure of mass and not of growth. Again, just as in any other um, pediatric measurement, we actually need to measure linear growth to determine growth. Weight, of course, could be a measure of fluid retention or of fat accumulation, or indeed of a mass such as a tumor. And this is why these other measures of growth are really important. And if we do measure all three parameters, we can see that in our preterm babies, declines in length and head circumference often exceed those of weight because it is much more challenging to support a baby's linear growth than it is simply to help them put on weight. So what are the nutrient requirements of very preterm babies? Well, I won't go over this in great detail because this is covered in one of the other presentations, but I'd like to just focus briefly on 
protein uptakes, just as an example. So if we're thinking about a fetus at the same time as our preterm babies are born, what are their nutrient uptakes across the placenta? Well, through active transport, the mid-gestation fetus acquires about 3.5 grams per kilo per day of amino acids via placental transport. However, in addition, the fetus is swallowing between 500 and 750 mils of amniotic fluid every day, and that contains about an additional half a gram per kilo per day of protein, which has been demonstrated the fetus is able to utilize and incorporate into growing tissue. So that means that the preterm fetus is growing at about accumulating four grams per kilo per day of protein. After birth, there is an obligatory protein turnover. This is just due to the normal breakdown and re-synthesis um, of muscle. It's obligatory, you don't have any choice, you can't turn that off. And this equates to about one to 2% of body protein per day, or about one to 1 1.5 grams per kilo per day of protein. So this is the absolute minimum requirement that a newborn preterm baby requires to avoid going to a nitrogen deficit that it would accumulate just due to obligatory muscle turnover. So we're estimating that the minimum requirement in the first couple of days is about two grams per kilo per day, increasing after about um, a week to about 3.8 grams per kilo per day after this. It's important to note that we have to pay close attention to nutritional intakes. As although we might prescribe intakes that meet the recommended requirements, evidence has shown that babies often don't actually receive what we're prescribing. And of course, this can be for a number of reasons. It may be that the fluid that we prescribe, whether parenteral or enteral, is not received for certain reasons. If it's parenteral, it may be that the fluid intake is taken up by other infusions, such as inotropes, sedatives, pain relief, etc. Or the intravenous infusions may be interrupted for a period of time, such as for antibiotic administration. And this can add up to one to two hours per day, which is a significant period of time. Enteral intakes may be decreased because of perceived feed intolerance or actual feed intolerance. There may be concern about whether the baby is tolerating the nutrition, for example, through measuring serum urea concentrations. Although it's very important to note that there is no evidence that elevated serum urea concentrations are, have any adverse effect. Similarly, there's no evidence that ammonia concentrations are significantly related to protein intakes. And so probably the most important reason for measuring serum urea is actually to see whether protein intake is sufficient or inadequate. There may be increased energy requirements, for example, through bronchopulmonary dysplasia or congenital heart disease. And then there might be micronutrient depletion, and the commonest ones would be sodium and zinc. For babies who have a stoma, we need to be aware that there may be malabsorption, particularly if there's high output. And finally, we need to be particularly vigilant at the time of transition from intravenous to enteral nutrition. As we're titrating one against the other, this can lead to a period of decreased nutritional intake. And this is shown on this graph here. So this graph shows you the protein intake, again, just as an example, in three different scenarios during the transition from parental nutrition through to enteral nutrition. The parental intake is shown in the black bars and protein from human milk is shown in the pale gray bars. In the first example and the second graph, A and B, the parental nutrition is stopped when the enteral intake which is 120 mils per kilo per day. 
And this is commonly done so that indwelling central venous catheters can be reduced, uh, removed as quickly as possible, reducing the risk of associated sepsis. You can see in graph A that if this is the approach that is taken, then as enteral intakes increase from 120 mils per kilo per day to 180 mils per kilo per day, protein intake is less than two grams per kilo per day, which really is not sufficient. In the middle graph, graph B, fortifier is added at when enteral feeds are five mils per feed. And you can see that this mitigates this decrease in enteral nutrition, but it does involve adding a fortifier. In the graph on the right, the approach is to continue the parental nutrition until the baby is on, in this case, 180 mils per kilo per day, which might be regarded as full feeds. And again, you can see that this approach mitigates that dip in protein intake. So these are all different strategies that can be used to try and, and prevent this idea. Again, I won't go into human milk fortification in great detail because this is covered in another chapter. But just to make the point that the high nutritional requirements of preterm babies mean that human milk given in, quote, usual volumes may not be sufficient. Usual volumes may be 150 to 180 mils per kilo per day. But as shown in the previous graph, this doesn't provide the protein intakes that are currently recommended. And it may be necessary to increase volumes to 200 mils per kilo per day or more, which often are tolerated well by preterm babies to support adequate growth. An alternative approach is to add human milk fortifiers, and these do lead to short-term improvements in growth. But it's important to note that evidence for long-term benefits, either on growth or on neurodevelopment, is lacking. The other point to note is that only human milk has significantly lower nutritional value than mother's own milk. And so infants receiving donor human milk likely will need nutritional supplements of some sort to ensure they have adequate nutrition. So the important thing is to be aware of the risk of growth faltering and then to monitor for it. If we address growth faltering early, then this can be prevented. As pointed out, length and head circumference are just as important and actually are a better measure of quality growth than weight, but they do need to be measured accurately. And this now is relatively straightforward with head circumference can be measured using a non-stretch measuring tape rather than paper tapes. And there are now a variety of devices available for measuring length inside incubators, even on babies who are ventilated or with CPAP. And ninotometer is a little more complex and expensive, but length boards are inexpensive and readily available. And there's a whole variety of these that can be obtained. Growth should be measured on growth charts, both for all three parameters, weight, length, and head circumference. But if it's possible to convert them to Z-scores, which can be done by a simple algorithm, this does allow a very simple and regular evaluation of Z-score change, which gives you a, an ongoing longitudinal measure of how a baby's growth is progressing. This also controls for both sex and gestational age. So what are common causes of growth faltering? Fluid restriction, for example, if a baby has a patent ductus arteriosus, one approach in some jurisdictions is to restrict these babies' fluid intakes, and this can lead to inadequate nutrition. Similarly, a high stoma output is essentially um, similar in the, in the loss of nutritional through the stoma rather than inadequate intake. The protein intake may be inadequate, and this can be assessed through measurement of blood urea nitrogen, which if less than 1.6 millimoles per litre 
or 4.5 milligrams per deciliter does indicate that protein integrated intake is inadequate to support growth. There's been a chapter on energy intake, and this also will lead to inadequate growth. And then two important micronutrients would be whole body sodium depletion, which can be measured through urine sodium output, and zinc, particularly after four to six weeks um, postnatal age. And this can be simply measured by um, using a serum zinc. Malabsorption, both the fat and carbohydrates are less common, but also um, would lead to growth faltering. Gastroesophageal reflux is often considered as a cause of growth faltering, but unless the baby is actually vomiting up milk, um, this is unlikely to be a significant cause. And in fact, the latest evidence suggests that there's no indication for measuring gastric residuals routinely. This doesn't add any value. And then, as mentioned previously, there may be increased energy requirement through either um, bronchopulmonary dysplasia or congenital heart disease. So what are the possible intervention strategies? Well, first would be to increase the nutrient intake, and this can either be by increasing enteral volume. And as mentioned previously, we shouldn't be shy of increasing volumes to 200 or even greater mils per kilo per day. Um, these can be increased as far as the baby's able to tolerate them. There are now human milk-derived fortifiers that are available um, in some jurisdictions. They're not available everywhere. And of course, whether or not they're affordable will depend on the model of care in that jurisdiction. Multi-component bovine-derived fortifiers have been around for a long time, either as a powder or as a liquid, and do provide additional nutritional intake, but of course um, are not derived from human milk. And then there can be individual components, protein, lipid, and fat. And the important thing to consider here is whether there is evidence that an individual multinutrient should be added rather than um, a multi-component fortifier. For example, as alluded to earlier, it's very easy to increase weight by giving additional energy such as carbohydrates or glucose polymer, but this may not really be promoting optimal growth unless the deficit is one of energy. So what are the key takeaways from, from this talk? Well, first is that we need to be measuring quality of growth and not just weight. And that means measuring length and head circumference, doing so at regular intervals and monitoring them on an appropriate growth chart. We need to be considering baby's growth as a trajectory over time, a dynamic measure, not just a position on a growth chart at a given point in time. And finally, prevention, of course, is always best. But it, when it does occur, prompt recognition, identification of the underlying factor and appropriate intervention can mitigate any adverse effects. What are the key areas of, of uncertainty? Well, we don't really know the optimal growth trajectory that supports neurodevelopment. We don't really know yet how bigger deficit in growth has adverse effects, although it is clear that the associations between poor growth and neurodevelopment have been around for a long time. Secondly, we really need large trials to determine fortification of human milk improves long-term outcomes without short-term costs. Thank you very much.